uh, the basics of our faith from the start to the finish. And it's why I like the creeds is because they start from the beginning, right? Particularly the Nicene Creed, when they start with the maker of all that is seen and unseen. That was last week's sermon on the Alpha and the Omega, how this is the entire story of it. And then it describes how Jesus is going to come again in glory. Today's metaphor is one that is used from the beginning till the end, and it is the one that is at the center of our uh, rose window. It is my favorite image of Jesus, actually, which is the victorious Lamb of God. Now, one of the things I want to say, and that I particularly think Martin Luther King Jr. was a master at, and uh, great preachers do, is they weave in imagery from all over Scripture. In fact, one of the major issues that I have with the modern educational world is when you lose the, the basic story of Scripture and all of the pieces that are in it, you lose one of the major ways of explaining the world to one another, right? So imagine this in terms of television. Uh, I, I have been told that when my dad was young, there were not many TV shows on. There was a limited number of options. And in that world, everyone watched one of the handful of shows that existed. So when he went to school the next day, did everyone know what was happening? Yes. It's why it was so insistent. They had no DVRs. I mean, it's a different world that I've simply been told of. Actually, in the 80s and 90s, that was still there. But we had increasing numbers of shows through my lifetime. To where it comes now and things win, you know, awards. And I go, what is that? I've never heard of it. This is actually what's happened in our world today where scripture was the common language. The common way of understanding the world in America was actually scripture. You can't understand Abraham Lincoln without scriptural references, nor Martin Luther King Jr., nor frankly, any of the great orators of the last 300 to, well, really 1500 years, because the story of Jesus and the story of God found in scripture was the common language. It was at least the common metaphor. So when you're in English class and you end up reading John Steinbeck, you can't even read the Grapes of Wrath without understanding, well, Jesus and these metaphors. I would submit to you that the metaphor we're gonna to describe today is one that is ubiquitous throughout scripture and is crucial to understanding who we believe Jesus is. And it's the one that John starts his introduction of Jesus with. And so rather than start at the very beginning, although it's a very good place to start, we'll see how many times I pull that off in this series. Um, I'm gonna start with John 1, the beginning of Jesus. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. For the record, I wanna stop here a second and say when we say that Jesus made all the whole world and you say John, even though he was born before Jesus, that Jesus was before him, this is what he means, is what we proclaim in the Nicene Creed, okay. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven in a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one you will, uh, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one. 
Now, John the Baptist uh, was perhaps one of the most famous uh, preachers uh, in, uh, in Jesus' day. In fact, once when Jesus gets in trouble in Jerusalem, he decides, they just ask him a particularly tricky question that if he answered truthfully, they'd kill him for. And so he responds, well, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. John's baptism, was it from God or from man? And the Pharisees are just terrified because they go back, they literally huddle and you can hear the huddle. I don't know how uh, the gospel writers recorded the huddle of the Pharisees, but they did. And they said to each other, well, we can't say it's of God because then he's going to respond. And why did you not listen to him? And if we say of man, the crowd is going to hate us. And so they respond, we have no idea. To which Jesus says, then neither will I tell you. Now, the reason I lift this up is because this transition from John to Jesus is critical in understanding Scripture, and the metaphor he uses is the one of, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. This is a metaphor that is truly found beginning in the book of Exodus in the 12th chapter, and I'm not going to read it because it's extremely long, but I'm going to tell it. In the book of Exodus, the Israelites find themselves in slavery. Uh, Joseph, their great-great-great-grandfather, had been successful in Egypt, but then there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And so over time, the Israelites became enslaved to Pharaoh to which Moses was sent, and there were nine horrific plagues that were sent because Pharaoh would not relent. And then there came the tenth. The tenth is the most drastic, it's the most barbaric, and it's also, in the end, the most beautiful, but you gotta get to the end of Jesus and not just the end of Exodus. Because the night before the tenth plague, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a message that says, go out and seek a lamb. The Passover lamb, it must be unblemished. It must be a year old. If you want to do all the reading behind this, this is Exodus 12. So you must go and you must find an unblemished lamb and then sacrifice it, spread the blood on the doorpost, and then eat it along with unleavened bread. This is, by the way, the forerunner for communion. So that when Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, has a new covenant and he names himself as my blood and my body, he is naming to them, I am the lamb that Moses was describing 2,000 years earlier, 1,500 years earlier. So, the Israelites are gathered together. They slaughter the lamb. The lamb goes on the, blood, on, the, on the posts of it, and he says, and my spirit will pass over, and the, the Egyptians lose the firstborn from the Pharaoh down to the one who is enslaved, including even their livestock. This is a very difficult passage sometimes to preach. Because if you're reading it, and particularly if you're reading it without a guide and reading it without the larger context of Scripture, you sit there and go, well, isn't that mean? Isn't that horrible? Well, not if you're the Israelites, and then they say, hey, you can now go free. But more importantly, what happens is a forerunner to what we see with Jesus. Because the Passover lamb was given as an atonement for sin. It was given as a, uh, as a way of freeing us from slavery, from bondage, from the brokenness of our world. And they were freed. 
Every year, then on Yom Kippur, the Israelites would slaughter a one-year-old, actually goat, but a one-year-old goat was also called a lamb. It actually says in Exodus, you could slaughter a lamb or a, go- a sheep or a goat. I kind of went down a rabbit hole this week of sheeps versus goats in the Old Testament. So just, they were both called lambs at one years old, I was told, I just discovered. But the point of the story is this, how do you make the world right? How do you make the world right? Because it clearly isn't. This is why for the black church, particularly the story of Exodus, the story of Moses, the story of Jesus is a crucial one because as the church was, was faithful to Christ, you have so many generations of black leaders in America who were writing down the story of the gospel and living it out even when they were not yet free even when the world was not yet made right. And the question then is, how do you make the world right? It's broken, isn't it? Can we all agree on that? If it is broken and Christ has come to be the one who fixes it, what does that look like? How do you navigate such a thing? So then we're gonna fast forward all the way to Revelation 5. In the last book of the New Testament, you have uh, the gospel writer John taken up in his revelation into heaven. And uh, there is this powerful moment where he realizes that the scrolls that will fix the world, the make world right, need to be unfurled, need to be opened. The seals of the scroll must be opened. And the question is given out, is there anyone worthy to open the scrolls? Is there anyone worthy? This is where as we Christians who are hopefully honest with our own selves, every single one of us looks around and goes, no, nope, I don't see anyone worthy here. You look around with despair and go, is any of us good enough? Is any of us holy enough? And it says that he began to despair and weep. And then there's this phrase in Revelation 5 where, someone, where, where the elder looks and says, do not weep. For see, the lion of Judah is worthy. Not a lamb, a lion, just stick with me. A a lion of Judah is worthy, and then it says, and I beheld a lamb who was slain, who is victorious. Just for a moment, look at that with me. the Lion of Judah. Now, you might be wondering, was John crazy? That is not a lion, that is a lamb. Was he nuts? Did he not understand it? No, you see, this is what's happening, is that he is connecting in Revelation to John the Baptist. This is a different John, by the way. John, anyway, a whole different John. Along with Moses, And realizing that what God has done all the way through history and through scripture is weave together this point that the one who is strongest is actually the one who surrenders. The one who has the most power is the one who gives it up. As Paul says in Philippians, uh, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself even to the point of dying on a cross. This is why 
Martin Luther King Jr. and the, and the, and the, non, and the, and the, the resistance movement of peace actually mattered is because it became far more valuable for one to give up their life than for one to take the life of another, right? It is because the logic of the world that you sit there looking for lions and the scripture says, no, 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 peel it back a little bit. It's really a lamb. It's really the one who would give himself. It's the one who would die for his friend. It's the one who would give of all that he has so that someone else might have what they need. Do you not think about this, the night in which Jesus was betrayed? Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. And he's in the garden of Gethsemane and Peter and the others have fallen asleep and they're waiting, Jesus is waiting to be arrested. And for those of you who just came back from Israel, you'll get this if you've ever been, the garden of Gethsemane is one of the most unbelievable places on the planet earth. It's one of the places where I still feel the breath of God in a way that is unlike any other. And one of them is because you realize that Jesus, where he was praying with his disciples, where the uh, soldiers were going to come through the gate, he could have escaped while his disciples were sleeping and instead he chose to die. Whereas he would say no greater love than this that a man would give his life for his brother. And so you go back to the story of Peter on that night, who's been waiting for revolution, waiting for the lion Jesus to come out. And he pulls out a sword. I don't know if you ever focused on this. One of my favorite facts is that Peter was tramping alongside where Jesus is talking about loving your neighbor and he carries a sword with him. I think this is amazing. And he pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest and Jesus says, no, healing will not come this way. And he surrenders. And you wonder, how is healing going to come from him losing? From him surrendering? From him giving his life? But that's been the logic of God all along. And you think back to the firstborn who sacrificed themselves. God asked nothing more of Egypt than he would do himself. Who gave up his firstborn son to death, even death on a cross, so that we might be freed. It's why as Christians, when we talk about um, transforming the world, we have to talk about it in different terms than the rest of the world talks about it. The church has failed every time it imagines the kingdom of God is going to come through politics or the kingdom of God is going to come through our success or our wealth or whatever it is. The kingdom of God comes when we model Jesus and give up our life for our neighbor. And so to end today, I'm going to read you Isaiah 53, 600 years before Jesus gave himself, this is what was prophesied. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. If you get to heaven and say, I was good or I did this or I did that, you, are, you and I are not going to be found worthy. Is there one who is worthy? Is there anyone worthy enough to open the scrolls? Anyone worthy enough to break down the brokenness that we have made of injustice, of poverty, of racism, of all sorts of evils that exist in the world? Is there one who is worthy? Do not weep. For the Lion of Judah is here. The Lamb of God who gave his life. In the end, he's victorious, friends. All that was wrong will be made right. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, I ask for your spirit to come into our lives. And sometimes, God, we have imagined that we need to just be good enough when you've simply asked us to be faithful. Knowing, God, that we are not good enough. Knowing, God, that we are not worthy. And yet, knowing, God, that you are that you were pierced for our transgressions, that you took our sin on yourself. God, may we be faithful, not out of some imagined world that we could achieve such perfection that we would be blameless in your sight, but rather, God, that we would be faithful until you take over even our hearts, that we might love as you love, that we might live as you live, and that the world might be changed because of it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.